I believe that I tie flies that work. I, I don't want a perfect copy because I don't think the fish are eating perfect copies. Okay? The fish are eating the ones that have got knackered. They've gone over Niagara Falls. They've been washed over, you know, they've been washed through. I mean, if you're a mayfly and you hatch out on our streams, I mean, it's just potluck. If you happen to hatch out six inches above a waterfall, that's your day gone. You know what I mean? Um, so, so I think that actually the pursuit of perfect fly tying is a worthwhile pursuit, but it's probably contrary to the idea of catching fish. Guiding is not just about getting someone to catch fish. Guides are therapists of the soul. This is Tim Ralston, South Africa's preeminent small stream fly fishing guide, author, FFI master casting instructor, and the brain behind the fishing gene, a blog dedicated to the art, culture, and science of fly fishing. In today's episode, Tim talks to us about why it's important to have an inquiring mind, why women are easier to teach than men, and why his fly box looks like crap. I'm your host, Gordon van der Spey. Don't panic, this is The Feather Mechanic. A lot of people have this sort of romanticized uh, uh, sort of idea of what guiding is. So take us through a typical day in a guide's life, in your life. I think the first thing I would say is if you if you are planning on guiding, you've got to be good at fishing. Okay, I mean that's to me that's that's a bar of entry. Okay, but in terms of your day to day work, that's a tiny, 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 tiny piece of it. What you're trying to do is you're trying to make sure that somebody who's got a limited time span. Usually, most of my clients people have, they're here on a trip or a holiday or a business trip, and they've got one day. Okay. And you trying to maximize that they have the best day possible. And it becomes quite stressful. You, you are solely responsible for this person. You're up there on mountain on your own. Um, and you're constantly trying to say, are they happy? Are they cold? Are they hungry? Are they wet? Are they, you know, have they had enough? Do they want to go further? Bloody, bloody blah. So, I mean, I've had Scandinavians say, can I swim? And I say, yes. And the next minute they've all got their clothes off and they're swimming around the Elon's Bud River with their wife and girlfriend, whatever. And you've got to say, you know, you're thinking, well, I'm thinking, well, she's nice, but there's a good fish rising under that tree. <laughs> and, and, and you've got to sit there and watch this chick swim around when you think, well, there's a classic rainbow under that bush over there. So, so you need to be able to do that, okay? It's not your day. <laughs> you know, so I think, I think that's probably the biggest thing of all is that you've got to, it's not your day, okay? You're working. What do you think most people can do to improve their casting? What are the common faults that you see? The simple answer to that is get some proper instruction from somebody who knows and has been taught how to instruct, okay? The fact that somebody is a bit like the guiding thing, the fact that somebody is a good caster doesn't necessarily make them a good instructor, okay? Um, so um, you might not want Louis Ham Lewis Hamilton to teach you to drive to pass your driving test in Cape Town, for example. I mean, the two don't necessarily go hand in hand. So, um, so the first thing I'd say is find a qualified instructor and, a, and I would say find one early. Paradoxically, almost all of us, myself included, we think, well, I'm a bloke. It's fishing. I know how to do this. I don't need to get anybody to help me. <laughs> no, we do. We all, we all think the same thing. So that'd be my first thing. The, se the second thing I would say is that it's actually much easier to teach girls than boys because we all have this idea in our heads that if it doesn't work, we just get a bigger hammer. Okay, so boys all try to use power. Okay, 
especially, and they all try to cast as far as possible, all the time. Yeah. So you take three guys on a lawn, you give them a triple weight, size twenty dry fly, and within five minutes they're seeing if they can't cast it thirty meters. Okay. They're not. They're not trying to hit a target or mend the line or make a spade cast or they're just seeing how far they can chuck it. Okay. So I would say that how far you can chuck it is not a good measure of whether you cast well. So so for me, the the thing that I learned from you, which which sort of meant the most for me was doing the basics right all the time. If you if your tippet's too short and you're not getting quite the presentation that you were getting, that is something that hampers you from catching a fish. By just carrying on doing that, it will affect it, it, it will affect you negatively. So lengthen the tippet. If you if you're doing the basics right the whole time and you're thinking about them the whole time then you already are at a level of proficiency that's that's a lot higher than the average oh absolutely so my typical day on a river whether i'm with a client or not and whether i'm coaching a potential competitive angler or whether i'm taking a, a, a social angler out on a day's guiding the first run or pool is wasted but even when I'm fishing on my own, okay? I'll rig up my gear, I'll rig up my leader, and obviously the conditions are different on different days, the wind's different, the fly size is different, whatever, so there's variables. And I will cast, or my client will cast that leader or that fly set up, and we will play with it until it is right, and we will not move. And I'll say, look, I don't care if we catch a fish in the first run. That's, not, that's of no importance to me at all. What I want to do is that by the time we start moving, we know it's all working. So when we have a good shot at a fish, we know it's all lined up. All the stars are aligned, the leader's working, the fly's floating, the bloody, bloody, blah, okay? Whereas a lot of people, they tie on a fly and they start walking up the river or walking in the river and they'll keep going, okay? And they will blow opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And then eventually they'll say, oh, you know, maybe I should have changed the fly or changed the leader or whatever. So fundamentally, I don't do that. I do not move until I'm happy that all my gear is working. Even when I fish on my own, I do exactly the same thing. The other day I was having a massive sort of, a, I won't say argument, but discussion with a guy who said to me, no, but you've got more control with a nine foot leader. And I said to him, but I, you're gonna catch like, not many fish with a nine, you'll catch fish, but if you have like an 18 foot leader or a 20 foot leader, you're gonna be able to present that fly a lot better. What's your take on that? I'm probably best known locally for two things, always sharpening my hooks and always fishing long leaders. Okay, so, um, and I've been an advocate of long leaders for forever, pretty much. In a trout stream, food, real or artificial food, floats down the current, and the fish position themselves such that they are in the most advantageous place that most food's gonna go over their head, right? They're sitting there waiting. So theoretically, if you took a box of flies and just empty them into the river and walk down with them, unattached to a line, they'd all eventually float over a fish. Because that's what the fish is designed, this whole, this whole strategy is designed to do that, right? So if you can get longer drifts, even if you don't hit the fish, it will drift over a fish eventually. I mean, that's a bit of an extreme example, but right. So to me, the more slack, the better the drift, you don't necessarily need to be as accurate. I don't need to hit the fish. I just need to hit the current where the fish's food's coming from and if it drifts long enough, the current will take it over the fish. 
every every one of my clients goes through the same lecture so i'll give you the lecture and the lecture is this this is the holy trinity of what we're going to do today it's all it's all going to be about presentation because it is always presentation even if there is a specific hatch and you've got a specific fly it's always presentation first okay i'd far, i'd far rather fish the wrong fly on the right leader than the wrong the wrong the right fly on the wrong leader absolutely okay so it's always presentation and for me what I say to my clients is this. So this is the way it's going to work. Your job is not to present the fly. So people think fly casting and all this mending is about presenting the fly, okay? But fundamentally, I tell my clients, your job is not to present the fly. Your job is to hit the target. I don't care how you do it. Your job is to hit the target. If there's a fish there under a bush or in that pocket, you hit the target. And to do that, you need high line speed, right? It is the leader's job to present the fly. It is not your job, okay? If you do it correctly, the leader will do that for you, okay? It's not a question of who can tie the longest leader. Or you can cast, it's not a question of who can cast the longest leader. It's a question of what works for you. But work, when I say works, it works such that the leader does the hard work for you. You don't have to think about it. You just have to hit the target, okay? And that's basically the way I fish all the time for myself, all the time with every client, same story. I yeah. think people don't spend enough time thinking about a lot of this stuff. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the common question. So you, well, not common question, but common occurrence is you're on a river and you catching a lot of fish and your mate will say the following to you. What fly did you get it on? P people have this silver bullet mentality. They think it's the fly. But the thing is... But Gordon, you keep writing books telling them it's the fly. No, but, I, you know, I'm not actually telling them it's the fly. No, you're not, but that's what they hear, okay? Seriously. That, that, is, that is part of the problem. That, that is what they hear. So when, I, you know, when I'm fishing or guiding, or if, if I'm doing some fishing, very, very often, at some point, the client will say, don't you think we, should, we haven't caught any fish for a while? Don't you think we should change flies? I say, why? I mean... Based on what, it comes back to that logical hypothesis thing. If a fish comes up and looks at my fly and refuses to eat it, there is a fairly good chance that a change of fly will make a difference. But even then, it could have been the presentation, it could be the tippet floating, it could have been my rod flashing, it could have been the guy behind me batting the rocks together with his feet, it could be any number of things, okay? So, but if there's no hatch and there's no fish rising, and what, the last thing I will do was change flies. Okay, I'm going to put on a fly I've got fairly confident in to start with, but um, I've had this conversation numerous times before, but so you take somebody like Pascal Cognard, who is retired from the, from the French team, but he's, he's won three individual world fly fishing championships. First, he's got to get in the French team, which isn't easy. Okay, you have to qualify each time. Then you've got to go and fish against 120 odd anglers from around the world on waters that you don't know. Okay, and he's done that and beaten everybody three times. If you think that's because he's got some magic fly in his box that nobody else has got, then you're smoking something, okay? It, to me, that's the most obvious example of why it's not the fly, okay? It simply can't be because nobody could be that lucky three times in a row. So what I've always been amazed about is, okay, so you are one of the best fishermen I know. Well, thank you. No, you, you really are. But what I find amazing about that is you don't have the best tackle I've ever seen. Like, you don't fish top-end rods. You don't, 
you must have misheard me when I said, Gordon, I'm a guide and handyman. <laughs> no, no, but, but it's, it's something that, that actually, you know, that quite amazed me, is you walk up a river and you catch a lot of fish. You, you really, you catch a lot of fish. And you don't have the best tackle. Let's, let's face it, you don't have crap tackle, but it's not, it's not top of the range. Um, well, I think it depends. I think it depends on on how you define top of the range. Number one, most people define that as being expensive. Okay, um, that's not necessarily a good measure. And there are some very expensive rods that are very good, and there are some very expensive rods that myself and lots of other people don't like at all. I, my background is science, and my work is handyman work. Okay, and guiding. So my my fly rod is a tool. So I mean that's why I'm prepared to sand it down. If if I had a hammer that didn't fit my hand, I'd sand it down till it fitted my hand. What's you know, it, it's it's a tool. It's not, I mean, I don't put it in the window for people to look at. You know what I'm saying? So um, it's a tool, and if that tool does the job you want it to do, then it's a good tool. Whether it costs you fifty dollars or five hundred dollars or five thousand dollars, yeah. So if you had to tell me what could I pick a five weight rod, I'd I could have anyone I wanted. I'd probably say I'd like a Sage XP. Which is what decade old, maybe more. I was having a discussion with an angler the other day about floating tippets versus sinking tippets, uh, and I know what I think. What, what's your take on that? You're trying to get me into trouble again, aren't no, you? I'm not trying to get you into trouble. So there are two Peter Hayes that we both know: the one Tasmanian the, Peter one, Hayes and the, and and the one in the UK who wrote Fishing Outside the Box. I really like the way that Peter Hayes thinks about this stuff. I don't necessarily agree with him on some things, but I like the fact I like the fact that he thinks about it, and I like the fact that he puts together at least a reasonable hypothesis. So we had a big argument about this because one of the things he said is that tippet should float. Okay, and uh, despite having our first interaction was an argument, he actually invited me to fish with him on the Wiley when I was in the UK, which is. I think fly fishing is probably the only place where you can actually have an argument with somebody and they're still invited to go with them afterwards. <laughs> uh, and he, his argument was this, that if the tippet sinks, it is reflected in the mirror of the surface of the stream and therefore you effectively got two tippets, one in the water and one a reflection. And he had pictures to show it. Okay. Um, and I think that's a pretty good hypothesis. All right. But as I said to him, I said, yes, but Peter, you know, the thing is, you don't ever fish in the sunshine. Here where we fish, the water's crystal clear, it's shallow. It's an African blue sky with a welding rod sun burning down on top of you. And when you throw in floating tippet, it throws a shadow like you chucked in an anchor rope. So for my money, under our conditions, I want it to sink. But if you're a trout sitting there looking upstream, which you do every day, looking at the same scene, and all of a sudden this huge black line whizzes across the your your vision be like you sitting watching TV have a lightning bolt come through the window if if I could find a way to consistently sink tip it I would do it even if it was illegal you sharpen the hooks on your flies regularly when you fish you actually do it a hell of a lot why one I do I never ever tie a fly on that I don't sharpen it ever so here but here's the logic behind it we all used to fish I don't know if you remember years ago probably two probably three decades ago Orvis brought out a two-weight rod. Okay, up until then we all fished four weights as the, like the lightest you could get, um, and that became the tool of choice really on the Cape streams. And we realised quite quickly that we kept on hooking fish and they'd come off. 
Not that it really mattered because we let them go most of the time anyway. But And the reason they were coming off is because the hook is not penetrating because of the barb. We realize that this is it's a doorstop, right? So we start breaking off or filing the barbs off, okay? And the reason it became apparent was because now you're fishing much lighter gear. When you're striking, you're not applying sufficient force to pull that barb in. So if you're fishing a five weight and five X tippet, you're not going to notice because uh, you'll apply enough force to push that in, okay? But now you switch down to a two weight and you're not applying that force. And now the hook is not going in and the hook's dropping out when you're playing the fish. So the first thing was that we start taking the barbs off. And obviously the logic then is that, well, if you're going to do that and it improves it, having the hook really, really sharp also improves it, okay? And furthermore, that if you want if you want this to be as effective as possible, you need the hook to penetrate right down to the bend. So I see lots of things online where guys saying, oh, these hooks are rubbish, mine bent straight, or I lost a huge fish, the hook's bent straight. You cannot bend a metal hook straight, even on 5X tippet, if, it is, if it's embedded up to the bend, because it's basically, you're pulling a piece of metal straight. You understand what I mean? But if it doesn't go in, if it hooks in the, if it hooks in the point of the fly, and you're basically bending that fly open, then of course it will open, yeah? So bent hooks usually are not a result of weak hooks. They're a result of failure to penetrate. I don't get the logic in going to all this trouble, whether you travel around the world or drive up the motorway or hike up the mountain to hook a fish and then lose it because you've got a blunt hook. That just seems... But it's one of those one percenters, right? It's just one of those one percenters. Okay, that, so that's beautiful because like I've started doing it as well. Um, but it's something that I didn't do for years, and I never even thought about it. Um, the other thing I've also noticed is that, and I'm not being derogatory when I say this, but your fly boxes aren't very impressive. Um, you know, you're not going to win fly tying competitions, but you hammer fish. What's your philosophy in terms of fly tying how do you approach it what what's what's important to you i strongly believe particularly in freestone streams that we fish the fish predominantly feed on damaged insects okay whether they are what the americans call shuck stuck or cripples or stillborns or okay they've been screwed over they're mashed in the current they're just bits of stuff usually in the film okay um and I think even in a hatch situation, the fish are targeting those things that are less able to escape, right? So I believe that the absolutely perfect, if you if there was such a thing, the perfectly tied imitative dry fly that sits up high, off the, almost off the surface of the water, if, if you could obtain that, balancing on six legs like a real mayfly, is going to be less effective than a mayfly that isn't so well... well I don't say not so well tied, is deliberately tied to be... I don't want a perfect copy because I don't think the fish are eating perfect copies. Okay, The fish are eating the ones that have got knackered. They've gone over Niagara Falls. They've been washed over, you know, they've been washed through... A, I mean, if you're a mayfly and you hatch out on our streams, I mean, it's just potluck. If you happen to hatch out six inches above a water floor, that's your day gone. So I think that actually the pursuit of perfect fly tying is a worthwhile pursuit, but it's probably contrary to the idea of catching fish. One of the things that I believe is super, or can be super important, is 
the texture of the fly. Every lure is about they look like, or whether they float, or whether they sink fast enough. Or I firmly believe that if you're tying a fly with soft materials, per personal favorite being CDC these days, the fish hang on to them longer because when they eat it, it feels much closer to a real insect, and therefore they don't spit it out so fast, and you don't miss as many fish. Okay, so now. I've never heard anybody say that. I've never read a book. I've never read a chapter in a book. Anybody ever say that? If, if I said to you, Tim Ralston, you're going to fish a Cape Stream tomorrow, uh, I'd give you the conditions. I'd say, okay, right, the water's slightly low. It's crystal clear. Um, you're only allowed one fly. Um, and you're fishing for your life. If you do not catch a fish, we are going to shoot you and bury you. What would the fly be? It probably wouldn't, probably wouldn't be a pure dry. There'd be an emerger. Yeah. I think the fish are much less wary of things in the film. Or maybe just the... You know, like I say, if you're a fish and there's something stuck in the film, then it's not going anywhere. It's, you know, it's... it's um, trade or predatory. Yeah, I mean, I think I always use this example with my clients. You know, it, you might have a pride of lions sitting on the Serengeti soaking up the sun and all these wildebeest walking past and nobody's taking any notice. And then one of the wildebeest walks past is limping. And everybody's up. Okay? <laughs> dinner's on the dinner's on the plate, right? In a micro level, that's what trout are doing as well. Okay, they're they're going to. I think I really believe that they take advantage of vulnerability. I think though, in terms of fly tying, I would say if you could incorporate a level of vulnerability into the fly, that makes it more effective. Which, if you look at it, one of the reasons that terrestrials are so effective, ants, beetles, hoppers, because they don't easily escape, and the fish know that. Yeah. So um, if I had to pick one at the moment, it'd probably be a CDC soft tackle, which is like half dry, half wet. Yeah, I think that I think this goal of the perfect, perfect dry fly is a worthwhile artistic one, but not a particularly worthwhile piscatorial one. I always tell my clients, make the cast. OK, if there's a fish under a tree or behind a rock or in amongst the weed bed or whatever. OK, make the cast. If you lose a fly, you lose a fly. Okay, that's the price of, of playing. But if each fly took me 20 hours, I'd be a little bit less gung-ho <laughs> to do that. Yeah, And then, of course, then I'm going to start saying, well, this fish isn't worth risking the fly. If you get to that point, you've lost it. Yeah. Um, so so the, John Girak had a thing in one of his books, which I really like, and it says that for a fly to be something along the lines of, for a fly to be any use at all, it must be thoughtlessly expendable. You're not prepared to hang it in a tree don't take it yeah so most of my flies are easier cheap enough that i can hang them in a tree so i like this because it's not just about the pattern it's about what the pattern does and and, that, and that's an important thing i mean when you tie a fly you've got to think about presentation you've got to think about ultimately what you're doing when you're tying a fly is you are planning a fish's downfall for sure you like you are like a sniper planning to go take someone out. You've got to get all your stuff right, and then you've got to go do the job. It's always presentation. And that even gets to the point of when you're tying flies, when I'm tying flies, okay? I am thinking about how is this thing going to present? I'm not thinking, does it look exactly like a ephemera volgata or whatever, okay? Or does it look exactly like a blue-winged olive? For the most part, I'm not thinking that. I'm thinking... Will it present? Will it present the way I want it under different conditions? If, if it's a nymph, will it sink fast enough? If it's a dry, will it land soft enough? You know, will I be able to see it? 
Yeah. Okay. And then I think, well, I might as well try to make it look a bit like a blue-winged olive. <laughs> but uh, that's like the last bit. Do you understand what I mean? Um, I mean, I think it's not my favorite thing, but if you if you take this explosion in Euro nymphing or tight line nymphing, okay, and you take probably the, almost most of the flies now are, are variations of a thing called a pyridogon, right? And if you look, to me, that's the absolutely epitome of what I keep saying about fly design. A pyridogon really looks like a nymph in the most rudimentary manner possible. It's got virtually no moving parts. It's got no fluff. It's got no gills. Maybe it's got three tails. Okay. It's got a bead on it. But what it does do is it gets to the fish's level and presents exactly where you want it to be. Okay. And that just proves to me that presentation in the big scheme of things, in this case, at the right depth and at the right speed, presentation trumps pattern. But if we look at fly fishing in South Africa today, our popular fly fishing quarry is probably the yellowfish. Do you often fish for yellowfish? When I get the chance. Again, when I started fly fishing, fly fishing was, if you were very wealthy, salmon. If you're less wealthy, trite and grayling on a chalk stream. If you're less wealthy than that, probably fishing soft ackles downstream in the Yorkshire Dales for trout, something like that, okay? And that was it. Okay, the, the biggest thing that's changed in my lifetime in fly fishing, people say, oh, graphite rods or carbon fiber or plastic fly lines. The biggest thing that has changed is there are no rules. Okay, those people we spoke about who said, well, we've decided that we're going to pick up a fly rod and now we're going to go drive ourselves down some remote cul-de-sac to achieve something different, have said, well, why can't we catch marlin? Why can't we catch bonefish? Why can't we catch tarpon? Why can't we catch yellowfish? There, there, are, no, there are no limits now, okay? So that's a completely different mindset to 50 years ago. Yeah, that if it's a fish, you got to work out how to catch it. Yellowfish is just one of those. In fact, yellowfish are easily targeted by fly on flies compared to some of these other fish. Okay, They're, and I think that people who are not South African don't understand how good yellowfish fishing can be. Uh, for me, a lot of it on the Vol Orange River system is, is Euro-nymphing because the water is quite dirty and they don't come out to the surface. And like I said, I'd far rather go somewhere that I can catch one dry flies. And that's why I, that's why I will go away in Lesotho because there I'm talking about yellowfish in crystal clear water. But um, for people, who, and I always say the same, but for people who don't know what yellowfish are, I always tell my clients that, that, that yellowfish are like riverine carp that have been redesigned by Enzo Ferrari. They will take a trout of the same size and drag it around backwards all day long. I mean, even on large trout, you don't see your backing that often. In Lesotho, you see your backing on every second fish. Um, I mean, every single trip I've done to Lesotho, I've blown up at least one reel. I think one of the best things is that the rest of the world hasn't actually discovered yellowfish. Because if they ever do, we probably won't be able to afford to go to Lesotho again. What would you say, what advice would you give to people? How could they improve their fishing by doing a couple of simple things? What could they do? I think I I think that the key is how you think. I think for all the best anglers I know, it's about how they think. And you and I might look at the same situation and think differently. You might say, I'm going to present downstream from over there, and I'm going to say, I'm going to creep upstream from here or whatever. But you are thinking about it. Okay. And I think that I think you need to be able to think about it when you're not catching fish as much as when you are catching fish. Years ago, a friend of mine who was a client originally, and I became a very good friend, who was an airline pilot, he used to spend time in Cape Town. And he got to the point that when we go fishing, 
if he was in Cape Town, I just said, let's go fishing. I wouldn't charge him. We'd both go fishing. And he was fishing over a run on the Elon's Pod River, and there were fish rising, quite a lot of fish rising. And he cast out, and the fly drifted down the river and drifted down the river and drifted down the river, and he got eaten and he hooked the fish. So he cast out, fly drifted down the river, drifted down the river, catch another fish. So Hugh, we need to change that fly. And he looked at me like I'd gone completely mental. He said, well, I've just caught two fish in two casts. I'm not, there's no way I'm gonna swap this fly over. I said, yeah, but I'm not looking at the two you caught, Hugh. I'm looking at the five ahead of them, all of which took no notice of your fly. Just, it's just a mindset of how you're looking at it. So he's looking at it as being successful, two cars, two fish. I'm looking at it, I saw at least five fish refuse it. So he changed flies and he took a fish after fish after fish, I think 12 in 12, in 12 casts. And even after that, he said, you know what? I would never have changed that fly. And so I'm saying, so if you're catching fish on a fly, I think it behoves you to change it. If it doesn't work, you go back to what you were using, but you might find one working better. That kind of mindset is ultimately how you get better. Yeah, that that mindset is saying, what would happen if? What would happen if I do this? What would happen if I do that? Yeah. Um, of course, the best way to do that is catch a lot of fish first, then you're relaxed. If there was one thing you could change in fly fishing, what would it be? I could think of a few. I'd like tippets to sink. I'd like fly rod guarantees to be banned. I'd like private water to be very limited. I'd like to see greater public access, which although that is happening in lots of places. I'd like to see a lot more youth involved and support of that. Okay, that's cool. Thank you very much for, uh, do you have any questions you'd like to ask me? I don't, want to, I don't want to ask you a question, but I do want to make a request. Stop telling everybody that it's the fly. <laughs> <laughs> ah! uh, okay. Well, Tim Ralston, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's been a blast, and let's hope we're on a stream soon. Mm -hmm.